Welcome to the Frequency 49 show, I'm Paul MacDonald. Midway through the 2015 season, Brian Davis and I had the opportunity to talk with a former 49ers player about his time with the team, his beginnings in the NFL and life after football. He was drafted in 1998 alongside players like Peyton Manning, Charles Woodson and Randy Moss. Played four years for the Chicago Bears and five years for our San Francisco 49ers. He was the Associated Press All-Pro Selection 2003 and NFL Interceptions Leader in the same year. Welcome to the Frequency 49 show, Tony Parrish. Hello, how are you doing? Excellent, thanks ever so much for joining us. Um, so, you started your NFL career in Chicago, um, played there and played every game for, uh, for the first four years of your career. Um, what was it like to play for the Bears and how did you enjoy Chicago as a sports city? You know, Chicago is a great town to play for. You really um, feel like they open you open up with open arms and, and, and really take you in. And you become, uh, you know, like a like a distant cousin. Um, and, and playing there was fantastic, although we didn't do too well. You know, our, my first few years there were four and 12, uh, six and 10, five and 11. Uh, we just had one or two pieces uh, that were missing. Um, in my final year with Chicago, we finally put it together and we turned that five and eleven season into thirteen and three, and and won the NFC. Uh, I believe it was the NFC Central. It was called at the time. Um, so things finally came together for us, and uh, really had a, a tight knit group of guys who um, who knew we had the potential. We just needed one or two pieces, and uh, we finally put something together there at the end. How did you enjoy playing in those Bears Packers games? You know, Green Bay is actually. Um, was my favorite away stadium to play in. Mm. You know, the Bears-Packers game, it's a storied rivalry, um, but there's really, uh, it really feels like it, it's a game against your your next-door neighbor. Mm. So there's a heated rivalry. Green Bay fans know their history, and they know the history of, of both teams, even going back to when George Hallis helped out uh, Curly Lambeau and at a time when the, the organization was struggling in order to help them keep their team. So they understand that their the teams are, are connected um, and intertwined in history. And yet at the same time, uh, the competition is extremely high. Um, so you go to Green Bay and you're driving through a, what feels like a residential neighborhood and, and then the stadium just pops up in the parking lot. Um, um, so it's just said really you're going in playing at the next-door neighbor's house. Uh, it's a heated rivalry on the field. And then after the game, uh, the fans feed you. You know, my, my rookie year, um, you know, I'm getting just that, that introduction to the whole Green Bay Niners, uh, Green Bay, I'm sorry, Packers rivalry mm. um, between the Bears. We go play, uh, and then after the game, the fans are feeding us, and I'm looking around at all my teammates thinking, we can eat this stuff? It's all right. I thought we, I thought we didn't like them. <laughs> And a couple of my teammates said, "No, if you don't want to give it to me," I said, "Wait a minute, let me let me look at it first. You know, so the uh, the, the, the good people of Green Bay are out in the parking lot, curling up food and and sending you home with a with a warm meal after the game, win or lose." Wow. So moving on from uh, Chicago, in two thousand and one, you signed a five year deal um, with our Forty ers Yes. Um, where you became a firm fan favorite in that time and a, um, known for being uh, obviously the formidable hard hitting safety that you were, and you weren't a place on the 49ers all-decade team. So um, what made the 49ers the team for you in that offseason? You know that offseason, um, the, the 49ers position, the 49ers job was the one that all of the, the free safeties, uh, I'm sorry, the, the free agent safeties wanted. Mm. Um, so it was definitely attractive. 
we knew there were a, a young team. We had Steve Mariucci as the head coach. Uh, Jim Moore Jr. was the defensive coordinator. Um, uh, matter of fact, um, Mike McCarthy was the offensive coordinator at the time. So just by the names I threw out there, they had a strong coaching staff. Um, they had a young team that was coming up. And that was the position that the free agent safeties wanted. So I was uh, you know, blessed enough to be able to come in and interview um, after visiting a couple other places. And obviously I said something right. They got the 49ers, <laughs> uh, got their wheels turning a little bit. And um, I signed the contract uh, to, to head back to California, which was fantastic because it allowed, uh, not only was it the position that, uh, that I wanted, but it allowed um, travel to the games much easier for my family. In your first season with the 49ers, you made seven interceptions leading the team. And in 2003, you made nine leading the league. But you didn't make the Pro Bowls. Why do you think that was? Uh, you know what? Uh, I, I've ended up in this conversation quite a few times. Actually, if you, <laughs> if you look at it for a three-year period there, actually led um, the NFL interceptions. I believe the number was, uh, I think it was around 22, something like that. Um it really comes down to the fact that I'm not a, a raw, raw guy. I don't celebrate. So I sort of uh, make my plays and, and go sit down. So there's a part of that vote that, um, that, I, wasn't, uh, that I wasn't getting. It's that simple. You know, we had some other guys on the team that sort of took a lot of that, uh, that attention as far as media goes. Um, but if you sit down and, and look at the numbers, um, you know, uh, an argument can be made that I was snubbed a few times. Um, in 2002, obviously, it was the um, we saw the NFL realign its divisions again. Uh, they dropped out the central division completely right. um, to the system that we have now. Did that really have any major impact on the players at all? Uh, it didn't have any major impact on the players. Um, no. uh, at least not for me because I was traveling. Uh, I, was, I was changing teams from the Chicago Bears to the 49ers. Um, so I wasn't really uh, affected all that much because I wasn't used to playing um, – um, in the NFC West, as it previously was. As a matter of fact, yeah. I don't think it even changed. Um, I, I would imagine for teams like Tampa Bay, who played in the NFC Central with Green Bay and Minnesota and the Chicago Bears, it was a big difference for them. Yeah. Because um, I know for quite some years, I want to say it was um, an area of, of 12 years that Tampa Bay um, unfortunately had a streak where they lost if the temperature was below 40 degrees, <laughs> like 45 and below, it was automatic loss. And yeah. it's hard, and it's hard to believe that, you know, you can have an organization, a professional organization, um, that, you know, when they played away and the temperature dropped up below 45, it was just an automatic loss. But, uh, but it happened. It was an amazing streak and I just wouldn't believe it. You know, every, every year when we play Tampa Bay, I was like, look, I'm not buying into that. It makes no sense. <laughs> but even when, the Bears were four and ten, and you know, uh, I'm sorry, four and twelve, six and ten, five and eleven. We still beat Tampa Bay at home, so <laughs> somehow it worked for us. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to touch on something that you mentioned um, about the Pro Bowl um, question. Was um, as a winner of the Ed Block Award, do you think that the players who had such a positive um, influence um, and were role models in their team's community get the credit that they deserve? Or do you think it's easier for the media to concentrate on a lot of the negatives that are going around, particularly um, in this day and age with uh, social media and, uh, you know, the networking and everyone's got a video on their phone and things like that these days? Yeah, I think you're uh, you're suggesting the right thing. I think in this day and age with uh, social media and the idea that we have a very short news cycle and only the mm. sensational uh, really grabs people's attention. 
I, I truly believe that there are more stories of of athletes um, doing good in their community um, than there is of athletes um, uh, getting in trouble yeah. and shedding a negative light on themselves. But that's not what grabs people's attention. So unfortunately, um, that's the world that we live in. Yeah. Um, but and I, I say this all the time. You know, there are 1,700 guys that uh, that play in the NFL, and a vast majority of them are uh, are family men and at home and and, you know, and and going to work and preparing for you know for the next game for the next season. And yeah. there really is just if you look at it, it's a small percentage of guys who who unfortunately have legal issues in the offseason, but that's not where the attention is put as far as the media goes. And unfortunately, you have to ask yourself, is it really going to hold people's attentions when you consistently give them, uh, you know, all, all the stories of role models and athletes doing good? I think it's something that um, I think just culturally we have to stop and, and take a look at ourselves. Absolutely, yeah. And I think a lot of um, the players will... will do that um off the grid as well so that they'll do it without making a big scene and a song and dance about it and do it kind of in their own private time when they know that there's nobody around as well so that they a lot of it will go unnoticed um mm-hmm. and like you say a lot of the negative um stories will be um people that are trying to sell uh, newspapers and people that are trying to get clicks on internet pages and things like that yes i agree if we go back to the on the field stuff um in your first season with the 49ers, won the NFC West, made the playoffs, and played that game against the New York Giants. <laughs> playoffs. Four minutes left in the third quarter, trailing by more than 20 points. Managed to pull out a 39-38 win. What was it like to play in that game? You know, the game was uh, it was surreal. You know, time stood still at moments of that game. It never mm. really felt like we were running out of time. Right. Um, so that was a really strange thing about it. We we always saw like, look, we're gonna hit the field one more time, and we're gonna stop them. We're gonna give the ball to Jeff Garcia. They're gonna make a play. So it was a very, um, it was a game that felt like, unlike any other game that I played in before. Because uh, when you when you look at that game, when you look back at it, look at the uh, the clock ticking away, um, and for the calm that uh, that I felt on the field, it just didn't line up. Yeah, I, I, it was in a time where I remember watching. Well, not, I didn't watch the game because I didn't. Um, it, I, I didn't have it on the the television at the time. I, I was having to follow um, on the internet, which was mm. painful. And um, <laughs> I just remember looking and and seeing us pulling it back and pulling it back and pulling it back. And I thought, surely not, surely not. And then all of a sudden, it's thirty nine, thirty eight, and we've won it. And you just think, how on earth did that happen? <laughs> you know what? It was it was one of those moments where you. I was on the field and I wanted to, I didn't know if I wanted to scream or I wanted to cry <laughs> because it was, it was that type of, uh, of an emotional moment when you look up at the clock and realize that we just pulled it off. Mm. Um, and, and you know what, if you remember correctly, that game got a little chippy. There were quite a few fights going down the stretch between yeah. uh, ourselves and the giants. And I do remember thinking, come on guys, please, we do not need a penalty right now. That's yeah, the last thing we need. Just we'll, we'll figure it out. Just we do not need an unnecessary roughness penalty. <laughs> so I remember just running in there, and you know, in the midst of uh, the fight, trying to pull people away and calm things down in the huddle. But it was it got pretty chippy. But at the same time, um, sometimes that's what makes it fun. Yeah, and, and that game uh, led on to the NFC divisional game, um, where unfortunately we got beaten by 
um, Super Bowl winners, Tampa Bay. Um, do you think that the game the week before took much out of the team uh, going into that game, or do you think Tampa Bay were just a much better um, team on the day? I think it was just Tampa Bay's year. You know, they okay. went on and they were extremely dominant against uh, the Oakland Raiders yeah. um, in the Super Bowl that year. And, you know, we were 10-6. and six. We won the division. Uh, we lost to the eventual Super Bowl champions. Um, you know, we had quite a bit to um, be proud of. It was an extremely respectable year. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, so it was sort of, uh, it was really rough the way that season ended with uh, with losing uh, Steve Mariucci a couple days later. Yeah. Uh, and then start seeing some of the, uh, I guess, the exodus of, of coaches and, and the talent on the team. Mm. Speaking of Mariucci, what were your feelings on the sacking of Mariucci? And do you see similarities with how they fired him with how they parted ways recently with Jim Harbaugh and that it's gone downhill so quickly after that? You know what? Um, I don't know where I would draw the uh, the similarities, but I will say that the the firing of Steve Mariucci was extremely surprising. Mm. Yeah. Um, as I said, uh, we had just won a division. We went 10-6. and six. Uh, we lost to a very good Tampa Bay team. Um, I remember being in the building that day, um, and uh, Mooch was quite surprised himself. Um, mm. And I remember him walking through the locker room, hugging everyone he could see, like everyone in sight. He had tears in his eyes, hugged everyone, and went out the went out the uh, the side door uh, to where the players' parking lot is. And and that was the last time uh, the last time we saw him. Mm. Yeah, incredibly sad. And obviously, that was. Um, uh, sadly, a, a period that was, uh, you know, we, we saw the team go through rough patches and uh, not winning many games. How hard was that compared to how your career actually started in San Francisco? Uh, you know what? It was very difficult, you know, because mm. we knew we, we still had um, quite a bit of talent on the team. Uh, we could win games. We, we knew that all we had to do was um, get a, a couple of right pieces uh, when it comes to uh, you know, coaches and just sort of let us go. Um, let us yeah. play. But uh, unfortunately, it really became a, a chemistry thing. You know, um, the organization just had a difficult time mm. trying to find the right ingredients to, uh, you know, to, to continue to be um, as competitive to be on that uh, divisional and that championship level. And we just weren't able to put it together. So then we started to see, you know, started to see the slide uh, on the on-field production. There was the odd bright point in that period. And in the first game in your second season with the 49ers, you opened up a can of war pass on the Chicago Bears, beating them 14-7. Was that a nice feeling for you? You know what? Yes, it was a nice feeling. What Every player wants to uh, wants to beat up on their old team. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, matter of fact, when you play against your old team, your old, your old teammates and buddies, it makes you play even harder. Right. <laughs> So, of course, that was great. I remember, I think uh, the Bears had Cordell Stewart playing quarterback uh, uh, that game. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it was a good time. <laughs> it, was a good, it was a good time. Do you go into those sorts of games with, like, kind of a point to prove? Is, is, that, is that the mentality of going in? Well, you know what? <clears throat> you go into that mentality, you can call, you can say it's a, you have a point to prove. But it's just like... Uh, you know, when you go down to the park and you play ball against your your friends, right? Mm-hmm. You're still trying to prove that you're better than they are. Right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so that's just part of being a being a competitor. It doesn't matter who it is. 
you know, you want to win. And then when you're playing against people that you're extremely familiar with, then you, there's always a little extra to try to, you know, exert some dominance. Talking of good times, you played with Terrell Owens. Um, you, you, played, <laughs> <laughs> you played in the Sharpie game. Um, yes. How was Terrell as a teammate and a character? And what stories can you share um, with us that are able to air on a podcast uh, about the time with <laughs> Terrell? <laughs> I, I'll tell you this about T.O. I, I think um, he's a very misunderstood player. Um, and I think that um, by the time he started figuring some of it out himself as it relates to, um, you know, uh, the impression of himself, how he deals with different situations, that I think that media storm had already started to to, to brew and he just couldn't mm. stop it. Um, I would imagine that there were some things that um, that he regretted saying or doing but in the moment, he truly believed um, in himself. He believed he was telling the truth. He believed that he was right. Yeah. So I think what happens is um, when you're speaking about, uh, about Terrell Owens, you have to remember he's a small-town boy from Alexander City, Alabama. Yeah. Went to, uh, I believe it was Tennessee, Chattanooga. Um, and then uh, was the was he the f- fourth pick, I think, third or fourth pick uh, the year that he came out and – and then all of a sudden, a couple years later, he was the heir apparent to Jerry Rice. So yeah. that's, a, that's a lot to throw on, uh, you know, a, a country kid who, who may have, uh, you know, struggled a little bit uh, with, with, with social graces and, and communication. So um, not to, uh, to make any excuses for him. Um, you know, I, there are definitely some things that I, I didn't quite agree with. Yeah. But with that said, no one has ever said T.O. wasn't productive. Um, when you look at numbers across the league, maybe they, toward the end of his career, they saw a drop of in production, but they were comparing him to himself. And they're also comparing him to the top receivers in the league. So he's always been productive. Mm. Um, he was always an incredibly hard worker. Um, no one ever include, and no one ever uh, accused Terrell Owens of, of, of lying or misleading anyone. So yeah. when you look at, um, you know, at the big picture, um, it's a little easier to see how, um, he was misunderstood and how, you know, the mistakes that he did make that were in his mind were, were honest ones. Mm. You know, uh, I'm sure uh, in hindsight, there are some times when he wished he just, um, you know, kept his mouth shut, but, but he always wore his heart on his sleeve. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was clear to see on, on the, uh, yeah. on the field on Sunday yeah. nights. Yeah. And so, you know, I played with, uh, with, uh, with T.O. in San Francisco and I also played with him uh, when I made a, a short stop in Dallas. And um, as a teammate, um, my first year with the Niners, I, although I continued to play and, and never missed a start, I was riddled with quite a few injuries. Mm. And T.O. had a group of, uh, of specialists that he would fly in to make sure that uh, he was physically able to perform at his best. And as um, I started to break down, he was sending his guys to me. Wow. To try okay. to to make sure that uh, you know that I could that I can perform and and be at my best because I was uh, you know leading the leading the team in a lot of categories and yeah I was trying to get back on the field and after my first off season um, in that first off season with the Niners um, I actually flew to um, um, to Georgia he was he was living in Lithonia, Georgia just outside of Atlanta I mm. flew and I um, I stayed at T.O.'s house. 
he opened his opened his house up. He said, "Hey, Tone, go grab a room. We're downstairs uh, just playing pool, and uh, tomorrow we'll go to work." So, okay. as a teammate, uh, you know that uh, that's Terrell. Um, you know, open arms and and you know introducing me to a group of uh, people who helped keep him at uh, peak condition and were able to help me recover from a slew of injuries I was playing with. Yeah, and uh, you know I spent um, a, a large chunk of the off season at Terrell's house, um, mm-hmm. and we were you know and uh, training and seeing the different uh, you know different specialists, and and I continued to go back to see to see those guys and to see him uh, in, in the following off season. So that's you know that's how Terrell sort of you know, approached the game, and that was that's the story of Terrell being you know of of being a good teammate that you know a lot of people don't hear about. Tio's character was, let's say, larger than life. Yeah. Um, the players these days in, in the NFL now, a lot of them are building their character and almost building a brand. Mm-hmm. If you were to compare Tio then to any player now in the NFL, who would it be? Mm. You know what? That's that's difficult because uh, it's very difficult. You know, and, and Tio was also on the on the front end of the of this this building media and social media sort of uh uh for lack of a better term this onslaught that we have constantly all the time yeah you know um so it's hard to see who we would compare to um yeah i don't think there is anyone one of a kind i don't think there is yeah as as i think about him uh doing sit-ups in his driveway in in philadelphia (laughs) as he was sent home from the eagles i just I, I I don't see it. I, I don't see it. Uh, I'm thinking about to uh, get your popcorn ready. And what was the other quote? I love me some me. Like I, yeah, yeah. I I, I don't see it. Um, at least not yet. There'll always be more. But right now, I think um, I think that was one of a kind. And I also think that he came around when organizations weren't exactly ready yeah. for someone to garner that much media attention. Right. Um, now, you know, uh, the organizations in the league itself are able to digest it and sort of, you know, cool the flames a bit, uh, and they're much more proficient at it. But I think uh, at the time, Terrell was getting all that attention that it was it was difficult. It was difficult for the for organizations around the league, especially for the ones that he was playing for. As a defensive back um, in the NFL uh, in the late 90s and sort of early to mid-2000s, what was it really like? playing up against the likes of uh, Brett Favre and, and Michael Vick, who were kind of in their prime at that at that moment in time. Yeah, you can go down the list of quarterbacks uh, <laughs> that played that I was blessed to play against. Um, matter of fact, as a rookie, I guess I can claim I played against Barry Sanders with Detroit. Yeah. You know, there's, a, there's so many guys that are just great players. Um, and to, to be on the field with them, um, in hindsight, it's just, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, it takes you, you sort of pause yourself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and you, you're thankful for the blessings to be able to be on the field and be able to compete with with some of the best who, who've ever played the game. Um, playing against Brett was always fun just because there were quite quite a few times when it was like playing against the best schoolyard quarterback around because he would yeah. do things that technically as a quarterback you are not supposed to do. But if, but if he saw it, he had faith in his arm and, and he would throw it. I remember one uh, one game in Soldier Field. 
um, against the Packers. Brett was, uh, I think the ball was in the area of the, of the 45 yard line and um, he was scrambling to his right. Um, I was on his left defending the, the half of the field. And uh, you're taught to sort of, you know, if that quarterback is scrambling over there, you're, you're taught to sort of, sort of, uh, you know, come off of your area and sort of squeeze down to where he is because yeah. some of those throws he's going to make just, you know, are extremely difficult. Well, Brett being Brett, once he started getting towards the sideline, he just stopped, somehow set his feet. They probably weren't even set, and he just slung <laughs> the ball diagonally across the field in the other direction. And, um, you know, as I was recovering and with myself and other defensive back, we go back to, to attempt to make a play on it. And I want to say it was like Antonio Freeman or someone, right? You know, touchdown Green Bay. And I'm just, <laughs> did he really just throw the ball from way the heck over there? And I came to the sideline. Of course, I'm pissed, right? Yeah. I come to the sideline, and my coach, uh, Greg Blosh, was our defensive coordinator at the time. He came up to me and wanted to make a comment about me sort of coming off of my line. Uh. And I just said, did you see where he threw that ball from? <laughs> Get away from me with that stuff. <laughs> In so many words, that's what I told Greg. And I walked to the sideline and and uh, took a sip of water trying to figure out how I was going to get back at him. You know, that's, yeah. that's the sort of thing that Brett Favre would do on the field. He would he would break the rules and, and somehow, uh, you know, it would work out for him. Yeah, yeah, and we saw him do it so many times against the 49ers as well, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. He's the guy that when you have a young quarterback being uh, being brought up behind him, you just say, look, don't do what Brett does. Do it like this. <laughs> you know. Let's bring it up a little bit more up to date now, if you don't. Right. Tony, you originate from the L.A. area. How yes. is it that L.A. has an NFL team or quite possibly two teams? You know, I think it's very important that we get a team in L.A., but at the same time, I, uh, it's a bit of a cautionary tale. I think um, the teams that have the, would have the most uh, opportunity of having success in California are teams that have been here before, mm-hmm. um, teams that have been in Southern California. Um, so, of course, the, um, uh, the Raiders have been here. The Rams have been here. San Diego can come north. But if it's other than that, I don't think it'll work. That's, um, I think that's... Um, as Southern California fans, you have to look at it and say, look, yes, we have the population for it and, and, the, and the numbers might play out. But you have to also just think about the, the mentality of Southern California sports fans. Um, you know, and those teams that I named have a base that's still here. There are still yeah. bars where people go watch games and, um, you know, and, and root for a team that they grew up watching or their, their family were big fans of, uh, you know, like when the Rams were here. But uh, do you really think you can bring Jacksonville or Minnesota or someone and put them in California and all of a sudden no. you're going to see those fans? I don't believe so. No, I think um, bringing the Rams back to L.A. will uh, will be good for the 49ers because that will ignite the, the whole San Francisco, L.A. thing in on the football scene. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we've seen it in baseball and uh, you know a couple, a couple of the other sports over there, with you know the, particularly the basketball as well. And I think the the Rams 49ers rivalry has taken a little bit of a back seat with uh, you know sort of Seattle as the new kids on the block yeah. I guess with uh, you know the, the the rivalry that's built there over the last sort of five or six seasons and I think um, having the Rams back in LA will be will be good for the 49ers. Yeah, I, I agree with you, especially with both teams being uh, in the NFC West. Um, 
I definitely agree with that. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, you know, there's been a, a battle over venue for years. Yeah. Um, and some of those ideas, in my opinion, were terrible, like putting a team in downtown L.A. or or trying to, you know, redo the Coliseum or or the one gentleman who had a, a plot of land that was, uh, I'm trying to remember what city it was. When I was when it was mentioned to me in the first time, I, my uh, immediate response was, where is that? Um, you know, somewhere off the, uh, uh, near, just outside of downtown off the 60 freeway somewhere. I'm like, where is that? Who goes out there anyway? Yeah, Um, sure. Yeah. So I I believe now, if I'm not mistaken, the, the location is going to be, uh, in Carson. They're going to put a stadium there near where the, um, um, near where the LA galaxy play in that, in that region uh, of California. I believe that's where it is. If I'm not mistaken, um, which I think, um, I think that works very well. I think that'll work. Um, so I'm uh, curious to see what's going to happen. Um, and then and then even to see the fallout around the league after that team is, is selected. You know, there, there are a few other teams who are, who've been trying to get uh, new stadiums and trying to relocate, and they're having some, uh, some difficulty. So once that option is, is, is completely off the table, um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you played in the first NFL International Series game in Mexico. Um, what are your thoughts on the NFL expanding overseas? Obviously, we've seen quite a few games over here in London. Yeah. Um, it sounds like they may be branching out a little bit more um, in seasons to come. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, they have, we've seen we've seen an increased number of games in London. Uh, you know, it's a market that uh, the NFL would love to um, expand into again after the experiment with NFL Europe. Um, and, and as far as players go, you know, players are excited about it. They'd love to go over there and play. I think some of the, uh, some of the Midwest and the West coast teams would be concerned about travel. Yeah. Um, right. Cause you're talking, um, 10 hours of, of, of plane travel. Like we'll figure it out, but that's on, that's on a good day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On a, on a good day. Exactly. Um, so they'll figure it out, but with the NFL, you know, uh, players, as far as game preparation, our bodies are sort of on a schedule. Um, and it's sort of scheduled to peak on Sunday. Uh, yes, sometimes you have, you know, Sunday night games and, and, and Monday, uh, Monday night games. And then we start yeah. seeing some Thursday games here and there, but the baseline is for the week to, uh, sort of peak for a Sunday game day. Yeah. So when you start thinking about that type of travel, um, you know, and, and you, have teams that are on the west coast it becomes very uh, very disruptive yeah absolutely. so and i think that's something that they're still trying to work out um if there's a team uh, uh if there's a, a team in the uk um would they be playing mostly teams that are you know midwest and heading east not so much against any teams on the west coast and how they'd make those arrangements but uh, you know there's some there's some uh, intelligent individuals working on that so i'm sure they'll figure it out but i know they'd love to uh <laughs> They love to put a team um, in London. Um, I played in Mexico um, I, I, at the Mexico City against the Arizona Cardinals. Yeah. I, it was fantastic. Uh, it was it was a great just to see. Um, those Mexican fans were crazy. They were yeah, I think crazy. There was like over a hundred thousand people in the it stadium. It was cr- absolutely. It was crazy, and I think they put twenty thousand girls be the twin ages of 16 and 19, like right in front of the, the tunnel of the locker room. When you walked out, the, the screams were deafening. And I remember a couple of, of guys going out to, to warm up for the game and they came back in the locker room. I remember a couple of guys going, they love me. 
they all love me. <laughs> <laughs> you could just hear the roar of the crowd. I um, mean, what a showing um, uh, by the Mexican sports fans uh, yeah. down there in Mexico City. Um, of course, the, the altitude, the altitude started to get to us because, you know, it's, you know, we're, we're, we ramp up to go to Denver to play a mile high stadium. And now, uh, now you're in Mexico city and, and, uh, and that stadium is looking down on mile high. So, yeah. um, when you watch the film of that game as players, we laughed because everyone in the field was noticeably slower. It was like the film slowed down. Okay. So everyone was playing in, you know, with oxygen deprivation. So <laughs> we thought we were running and, it's almost like that last gear, no one on the field could find it because yeah, tried in water. <laughs> exactly, because the air wasn't there. Um, yeah, it, it took some getting used to, and we had to adjust very quickly. Um, the day before the game, we went out and, and had a little workout, and the coach was like, "All right, guys, we have to get used to it." Well, we started jogging across the field, and after um, uh, after one round. The guys just started looking at each other, going, "Is this for real? <laughs> <laughs> like we're really gonna play in this? Because I am yeah. exhausted. Can we lay down the stretch right now?" <laughs> yeah, when you're playing at Candlestick and uh, in San Francisco, right on sea level, I guess altitude training is kind of the last thing on your mind, isn't it? <laughs> the absolute last thing. <laughs> you, you, you're not going to train for that by running up the steps of the stadium. Let's be no. There is oh. no training for it. The only way you're going to train for it is have your buddy wrap a towel around your face and you start running. That was it. That was before we had these uh, oxygen deprivation masks. I mean, there's, there's no way. You just have to grit it out. Yeah. Going back to the London games, have you had the chance to come out here and watch the games in London, or have they been watched from the comfort of your man cave at home? <laughs> yeah, I have not gone to London to watch a game. Um, I would like to because I love London. Uh, yeah. Uh, I've been out there once before and I had a great time. Um, so, I, but I have not gone out there. Maybe, uh, maybe next year when they have a game out there, I'll go. I have a little extra incentive because um, uh, my best friend uh, Jason Bell, who played for the Giants, he's currently doing a doing a show in the UK with OCU and Euro. They started last week. So, yes, yeah. if they uh, if they continue to uh, to do well with that show then I'll, I'll have to be out there mm. for the London game next year to, uh, to to say hello to the guys and then watch some football. Yeah, well, we've got three games next season, mm-hmm. um, which are being announced next Wednesday, I think, isn't it, Paul? That's right, yeah, next Wednesday. Yeah, so there may be a chance that the 49ers um, are one of those teams. So if, if they do come over again next year, um, you know, we'd love to uh, take you around London and show you some of the sites before the 49ers play here on the Sunday. You know what? I'll I'll, uh, I'll pencil that into the into the calendar, and we'll see how there things go. go here. And then, but yeah, <laughs> I, I'm well, I'm serious, man. I love London. Had a great time in London. Um, uh, when I visited previously, I actually went out with the um, with my buddy uh, Jason Bell uh, the last time with a couple of other, with probably three other former players, and okay, and uh, and we hit the city, and and the funny part about it is we we went to a few concerts. Um, but they aren't the concerts, the concerts that you'd expect. We 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 saw girls aloud probably about <laughs> three or four times. <laughs> but there's a good reason for that. If 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 you know uh, you know uh, my absolutely my buddy Jason was uh, was dating Nadine and they were soon to be engaged. So we okay. So we we supported girls aloud a lot. So it was hilarious because. Uh, 
um, we were out there like girl band groupies, <laughs> and uh, we started calling Jason. Uh, we started calling him J Fed, as in like Jason Federline. Uh, I think Kevin Federline when he was dating Britney Spears. Yeah. We started calling him J Fed because everywhere we went, the paparazzi were coming. We were like J Fed, you're killing us. Get out of here. <laughs> so he's like, man, so like, she's not even here. Why are they? Why are they, why are they coming after us? We're just trying to hang out. <laughs> But yeah, so we had a great time out there. Love London. I'd definitely like to go back, and uh, I'm sure I'll be back in the near future. What are your thoughts on the current goings-on with the San Francisco 49ers, both on and off the field? You know, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. You know, it, the NFL is, is, is full of, uh, of teams trying to find the right chemistry and trying to peak at the right time. You know, you can, you know, you can make arguments as far as, you know, some teams having more talent than others. Um, but everyone in the NFL is talented. I mean, everyone, there's a, you know, an outlier in their own right with their, with their skill level. So you have to ask yourself, what is it that really, you know, helps teams put things together? Um, obviously, we have a big issue with trying to get settled um, with our quarterback play. Um, You know, into that, I always think about how many years did, you know, Tom Brady just have a bunch of guys on offense with with New England and they were just winning, right? Yeah, they were picking guys off the street at one point. Exactly, and they were just winning. So that's sort of what I'm referring to when it comes to trying to find that right chemistry, trying to get the, the, execute the right system for the individuals and the talent that you have on the team. Um, you know, they've obviously have done the, uh, in New England have done the greatest job of it, uh, you know, over the last 10 years or so. Um, but that's where the 49ers are right now. So it's trying to find um, that right mix with the current team. Um, and then for next year, I, I think everyone in the organization from, you know, uh, especially at the top is gonna have to say, okay, where are we? What is our plan and how are we going to make this this product on the field um, um, turn around? What are your thoughts on, on the Kaepernick-Gabbert situation? Uh, you know, it, it, it just seems to me that the organization has taken a, a different direction. Um, and I think it starts before uh, Kaepernick and Gabbert. I think it goes uh, back to Harbaugh. Um, and I think that this is just more fallout from that. Um, you know, I would say that the Niners are going to go in a different direction next year and Colin will be playing for someone else. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm saying. I think that, um, it's, it's a slow bleed is what it is, what it feels like to me. Um, It does feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like a slow bleed. And so at some point you have to say, you have to cauterize it and then, you know, and make a sharp, sharp turn and make a move to, to get things going in the right direction. So I think those are the answers that will, that the organization will be looking for this offseason. Um, you know, at, at the same time, as I look around the league, you know, you say, hey, that the same thing happened to, to RG3, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, if that's the case, I think that the Redskins have done a, a much sloppier job of, of changing direction. You know, if, mm. you know, every player has their strengths and weaknesses and if you want uh, to take a different direction um you know go in a different direction don't do it slowly don't don't uh you know 
ruin the value of that player if you decide yeah. you if you decide you want to trade him you know okay say look we're going a different direction we're going to sit him down we're going to keep him healthy he's going to con- continue to progress and he's going to have value for someone else um and you know that's sort of what the Niners seem to be doing to me uh and I mentioned the Redskins because I think they're doing a terrible job of it the way they're handling RG3 it really doesn't make any sense to me at all no and I think as hard as it is to watch at the moment I think the 49ers should be in a good position come the offseason because we've got a bucket load of um, cap room um, and mm-hmm. if Kaepernick does get cut as well then there's going to be a lot of room for uh, free agents um, in the offseason and also couple that with what's looking like at least a top 10 possibly even a top 5 draft pick as well so potentially suck it up and let's just yeah, yeah the, the money right off this season and then, yeah, look at the money situation next season and see what's there in front of us. Yeah, the money situation is going to be there, but uh, it it's all comes down to evaluation. You know, you have to say, okay, what are we going to be? What are we going to look like? Who are we? Yeah. And then you have to fill in the personnel surrounded by that. Um, unfortunately, um, there have been some mistakes made. I believe it's the, was it the 2012 draft class where you look on the current team now and you don't see any of those guys? It's a complete write-off, yeah. Yeah, you, so that's, you know, that's an extreme um, right there, but that's the last thing that any organization wants. Mm. Um, so those are the type of mistakes that need to be avoided when you're trying to say, okay, who are we, what are we going to look like going forward, and now let's find the players to fit that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of questions that have to be asked, you know, from from top to bottom. Not that I'm calling for, you know, Tom Sula's job or anything, which I'm, I'm sure. definitely not. But what I'm yeah. saying is, you know, we have to find some sort of, um, you know, we have to figure out what our foundation is. Yeah. You know, when you look at the 49ers going from, you know, from, from Nolan to Singletary to Harbaugh to, uh, to Tom Sula, like, look, okay, what are we going to be? Because they're all different guys. Those are all different, you know, different guys. Um, so it's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, definitely. Um, so sort of moving on from football, what are you doing with yourself right now, now, now that you're a, a retired man? Yeah, now that I'm a retired guy, you know, I, I, um, uh, I've gotten into just, you know, making up stuff. That's what I okay. call it, you know, being, <laughs> out, being, being an entrepreneur, you know, I have... Um, you ended up with a with a good sized Rolodex, and there are a lot of different projects and deals that come across the table, and and uh, so I started, you know, consulting for you know for some of those companies, and okay. and uh, you know just looking for the next one that's gonna that's, that's gonna pop for me, and that I could dive into for the next five years or so. So okay. that's what I've been doing. I've been blessed to uh, you know to play ball for a while, and and sort of take my own pace at it. Um, and can we follow you on Twitter? Yes, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at um, what? What is my Twitter handle anyway? Very good question. That tells you how active I am. But I always yeah, do, well. We need to get you active again. Exactly. Though. But I always, I always do respond to people. I think it's the Tony Parish. The Tony okay. Parish is on Twitter. Uh, I think Instagram. I'm at uh, Tony underscore Parish. Sure. And uh, yeah, but yeah, I always. Uh, although sometimes I'm not sharing my thoughts as often as I should, I always respond to people. That's for sure. Okay. I've, I have a couple of buddies of mine who have social media companies. And they keep saying, "Tone, you need to be way more active." And I say, <laughs> "I know, I know, it's coming. Give me, give me a second. It's coming." I had that conversation a couple of days ago. So I think maybe yeah, well, we'll, look what it's done. You know, you're, yeah. you're talking to uh, 49ers fans across a very large ocean. So yeah, it's always great uh, to to um, to 
to hear fans with an accent. It just it just <laughs> it just reminds you of um, just the reach of the game. Um, and and then I start thinking I couldn't imagine if I was a if I was a footballer as you guys call it. Just yeah. the you know just everything behind that. I grew up. Soccer was actually my first love. So okay. I, yeah, football is the last thing I, the last sport I picked up. Wow. And I had to make a make a difficult difficult decision at the time. So I've, I've okay. always been a bit a fan of your football since I was a kid. Okay, so so it'd be remiss for us to ask who's who's is your soccer team? I don't have a UK team. Okay. I don't have a UK team. Uh, I like Barca. Ah, good man. Yeah, but and I've liked them for a while. I actually, went out there of quite a year. Actually, after my second year with the Niners, I went up, went out there with a bunch of my buddies from high school. Okay. And we, uh, you know, we hit Spain and saw some games, and you know, it was it was fantastic. Good weather as well. <laughs> yeah, it was good weather. It was fantastic. Yeah, exactly. We, we were out there right around uh, just before holiday and through it. Yeah. Tony, you've been so generous with your time tonight. Uh, we can't thank you enough. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. No problem, man. I appreciate it. Um, I enjoyed it. Anytime. That's it for this episode of the show. Thanks to AudioNautics.com for the music. You can follow us on Twitter at Frequency49 and on Facebook, search The Frequency49 Show. On behalf of Brian Davis, I've been Paul MacDonald. You've been the audience, and this has been the Frequency 49 Show. Bye for now. Frequency 49.